Today and the next three weeks, we'll be looking at this prophet <clears throat> before we get back after that uh, into 1 Corinthians. Uh, but this morning, we're going to begin a brief study through the book of Jonah. Uh, before we go to the Lord, let's, hear, let's go to him in prayer. Pray with me. Dear Lord, our Father, we come before you, and Lord, we bask in the knowledge in knowing the privilege of your presence as we worship you together now as your people. And we thank you that you are holy and you are able to cleanse us and to grow us by this, your word, through the work of your spirit. We praise you and thank you that you are gracious and are able to deal with us in our sin and in our brokenness. And we thank you that you're merciful and able to lift us up in our weakness and in our frailty. And indeed, that you are strong and good and true and gracious. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as we turn to you again now and we turn to your word, we pray that we would seek you and hear your spirit instructing us and that you would place that word into our hearts that there we may learn to love you in new ways and place it in our minds that we would understand you and your ways better. Lord, we pray touch our wills by it that we may submit ourselves gladly to your sovereign will that all of our life we may learn how to glorify you and to enjoy you forevermore. And so, dear Lord, we come again to you and ask, speak, for your servants are listening. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And just by way of reminder, there are monitors in the back and in the nurse nursery. Um, if you need to um, take your children out and quiet them, change them, whatever they may need to be done. Um, please give your attention now to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 is the word of our God. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa and and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps he will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us, who, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So far the reading of God's word. May he indeed add his blessing to it as we expand on it now. We comment often this phenomenon that happens with our over-familiarity with uh, the Bible. In one way, that's a good thing. We are people of the book. We should love this word and and, and continue to read it and reread it and read it. But Jonah is one of those books that perhaps um, falls prey to this phenomenon, and that is this over-familiarity, right? We are, there are problems with us understanding and seeing what's really going on there in the text. Um, and that's one of the problems, our over-familiarity with it. Another problem that, we, that happens is we think of with our children, when they see this book, right, or if they've been raised in the church, they think of uh, just this big fish swallowing Jonah and throwing him back up. Another thing that function kind of as rabbit trails uh, uh, in regard to Jonah is we begin asking ourselves, what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Um, Could this thing really happen? But all of these things miss the point of the book of Jonah. They miss the point. And as we look at it, literarily, Jonah is an amazing book. It's amazing. It has far more, uh, this, this wonderful literary quality is far more uh, evidence, right? This poetic structure is far more evident in the Hebrew. Um, <clears throat> uh, but more than that, more than that, all this, the, the wonderfulness of the text and the way that it's composed, the book of Jonah preaches Christ. It preaches Christ, right? And we have to remember that there is no inspiration without purpose, right? The Holy Spirit did not command to preserve and set down for his people for all generations filler material, Right. You who remember writing papers for school um, know this phenomenon. To stretch your paper a little bit, you add filler material uh, to get to the page length or what it, whatever it may be. That doesn't happen with the Lord and his inspiration of his word. It is all there purposely. It is all there deliberately for we, his people. And as we look at Jonah, his task is odd. It's an odd task. He's a prophet to Israel, but he is sent to a foreign people. Why is God sending his prophet to a foreign nation, to Nineveh? You'll recall that Nineveh is the capital city, indeed it was the last capital city, uh, of Assyria. Nineveh and Assyria. They are the ones who come to conquer Israel and to carry their children away and their wives away. They're God's enemies. Right? They have already taken tribute from Israel and been made rich off the backs of their people. And so when Israelites hear the name Nineveh or Assyria, they don't think happy thoughts, right? These aren't, this isn't a kind connection that they have 
with them. They think unkind thoughts. They're the worst kind of pagans and the worst kind of enemy of God and his people that there are. And so remember as well, as Elder Peachy mentioned, this is a time when Israel is a divided people. It's a divided nation. There are 12 tribes originally, as you remember, and there's rebellion, and Jeroboam took the northern tribes away, and now there are two peoples of God, 10 in the north and two in the south. Israel kept the name in the north, and Judah was the, same, the name of the, south, the southern peoples. So Jonah is a prophet to the northern kingdom, which, to remind you, will be destroyed approximately 30 years, approximately 30 years after Jonah dies. By whom? By Assyria. And in 2 Kings, our Old Testament reading, uh, it's a prophecy. If you read the whole thing in context, it's a prophecy of prosperity. Israel expands after Jonah prophesies to them. And all that we know of him, this prophet, Jonah, with this odd calling, comes from 2 Kings and from his book, the book of Jonah. And the odd thing is, when we look at this book, the way it opens, the way the context is set, Jonah doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go. God says, go prophesy against Nineveh. Her sins have come up before me. We would think that he would want to go and call out against Nineveh, against Syria, uh, Assyria. But Jonah doesn't want to do that. It's what he did to Israel, the Lord. Their sins were great. And Jonah was sent. He was sent there to prophesy against them and against their sins. And then God tells Jonah, Change directions, Jonah. I'm sending you to Nineveh. What does this mean? Right? You're done in Israel. They're done repenting. Go elsewhere. They're leaving Israel behind. And this has caused the cause of Jonah's angst. Right? He does not want to uh, leave Israel. He does not want to go to their enemies. Leaving Israel and going to Assyria and going to Nineveh? Jonah would rather die than obey God. He would rather allow not only himself, but everyone else to die as well, as we'll see as the story progresses. Jonah has allowed his sin to so cloud his judgment that he's forgotten the intended universal scope of God's redemptive activity amongst his creation. He's forgotten God's covenant promises to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. We see this uh, the thread of this all from Adam and Eve and to Noah, to Abraham, they're blessed in order to bless the nations, and on and on, even to the Great Commission, right? from Jesus himself, who said, go into all nations, baptizing and teaching. Right? And so this is the promise and the point from the beginning. And Jonah, Jonah has forgotten this task, this overriding um, principle. And rather than love the Ninevites, their enemies, he hated them. He hated them in pride and in superiority. His point is, it is only to Israel that I will prophesy. When we look at the first three verses of chapter 1, we see the word of the Lord versus the will of the prophet. The word of the Lord versus the will of the prophet. It begins in a normal way that we would think that we see um, a number of times in the Old Testament. God says, get up and go. And the normal response, the thing that we normally hear following God's command to do something, is that the prophet gets up and goes. Right? It says, get up and go. And the prophet got up and went. That's normally what we hear. <laughs> Storytelling in Hebrew is different than in English. There's lots of repetition, and that's, uh, it's there for a reason. Repeating things word for word has purpose to it. 
Uh, again, it sounds like bad writing to us, and sometimes, unfortunately, because that sounds so odd to our ears, English translators will find synonyms to do away with this repetition of saying the same words. But it sounds like bad writing, but it's not. And the point is this, that when we see this repetition, that the prophet did exactly what God told him. And when we don't see that, something is off. It should, it should pique our attention. So we see this often in Scripture. And this does not happen. This, this, uh, uh, this anomaly doesn't, uh, we see in Jonah. Right? He doesn't say, get up and go to Nineveh. And it says, and Jonah got up and he fled to Tarshish to get away. It's like if he were to go, uh, told to go to Iraq, but he flees to Spain. Right? They're, two, and two, they're, they're the opposite directions, the furthest away from themselves that they could be. And God's prophet is in what? He's in flagrant disobedience. The one, to whom, the one whom God, who should be the most faithful, is willfully running from God. It's God's prophet. Verse 2 tells us of Nineveh, their evil have come to me, right? meaning in a special way. This is something that we read a number of times in Scripture as well, like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Their evil has risen up to me. It's come to me. Why is Jonah doing this? Why is the prophet of God doing this? We see here a pattern of demise. He is disobedient and this leads to his descent. And again, literarily, it is very interesting. He comes from the promised land down to Joppa, down into the boat. And that, that downward movement has a meaning. The further away you are from the promised land, from the holy land, the further you are from the presence of God. To leave Israel is to leave what? It's to leave God's home. It's to leave uh, his sanctu- the sanctuary. And the further down one goes, the closer he gets to the realm of the dead, to Sheol. Further down, farther down, closer to death, farther from the life-giving presence of Yahweh, his Lord. And every step he takes is further from the Lord and closer to that realm of the dead. So why is he doing this? Why is this prophet of Yahweh doing this? He's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He's a prophet. Why is he being so disobedient? And we wonder these things, brothers and sisters, but often we do the the same thing. Often we know just what the word requires, just what God has said, who God is and, and, and what he is like, and yet we act in a manner as if that were not true. In our sin that lingers and clings in our the flesh that clings to us. We theologically know these things, that it's the case. We read the word and ask, why do they act like that? Right? We think of the Israelites in the wilderness or the prophet Jonah. And we think, why are they so foolish? Are they that dense? It's very clear what they're supposed to be doing. What are you doing? Yet daily we live just like that in a thousand different ways, often fleeing from God's presence, often denying his word in our lives, often not doing what is so readily accessible to us through the power and presence of the Spirit in you, his people. What is so plain in the Bible is that we deny it and we refuse to do it, yet somehow we can think that we escape God's gaze or God's knowledge as we do it. And this is something of the dumbing and numbing effect of sin in our lives. There is a, a fight for our affections within us. Right? The Apostle Paul very, very clearly lays this out. 
in Romans 7. There's a battle, a war that wages within us for our affections that needs to be brought to light and rooted out. Because if not, we are made fools. We know to whom we belong. We know the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Yet we act in hate very often and in patience and in rejection, contrary to who we are. Jonah knows God's plan here. He knows it. He just doesn't like it. He has put his hate over God's love and God's mercy and God's plan and his will and desire. We see next in verse, verses 4 to 7, the Lord's action, the pagans' reaction, and Jonah's non-action. Right? The Lord's action, the pagans' reaction to what's going on, and Jonah's non-action. Right? In verses 1 to 3, we had Jonah versus the Lord, and now we have the Lord versus Jonah, and how everyone reacts to what God is doing. And all through this book, we see contrasted Jonah's plans and God's ability, Jonah's plans and God's power. And here it's Jonah's inaction versus the pagans' reaction in the boat. And it's fascinating as we unfold this. Right In verse, verse 4, we see God threw a great wind. He hurled a great wind. And the sailors threw cargo out of the boat. And what about Jonah? What is the prophet of Yahweh doing? Jonah goes down into the hold of the ship to sleep. And there's a shift in the story here. In verse 4, Jonah's plan is, I'm going to Tarshish, I've paid my money, I'm here, I'm fleeing from God's presence. And then verse 4 comes and it abruptly enters, and it says, but then the Lord hurled a great wind, he threw a great wind. This is God's action, what? In response to Jonah's disobedience. Let me see the sailors' reaction in verse 5. Right? They begin to pray, it says, each to his God, a generic God. And they begin to throw off cargo. And they're losing all of their money and they don't care. They want to live. And Jonah, the prophet of Yahweh, goes down, down into the hold of the ship, one step closer to death, one step closer to the realm of the dead, one step further from the covenant Lord. And he lays down and he sleeps. These are two words in Scripture that are used of death, right? Laying down in the Old Testament, such and such king laid with his fathers, or sleep is a common metaphor of death in the Bible. And notice the descriptor, right? Not just a sleep, but a deep sleep. This is the same uh, phrase that's used uh, in Genesis 15 with Abraham. Remember, he is in a deep sleep when the Lord visits him and represents himself as that smoking fire pot going through the animals uh, that have been cut in two. Jonah is in a deep sleep. He's sleeping while the pagans are up top doing what? They're praying. What happens next? What happens next is that the captain comes. He comes down and he says, what are you doing? From the deep sleep, Jonah hears these same words, get up and call out. It's the same as from verse two, when the Lord comes and he says, get up, and go and call out to Nineveh. And I'm sure you can see this would have freaked Jonah out from this deep sleep. And he hears again the words that he heard, the, the, the call of God on his life to go to Nineveh. Would he have thought that God had caught him, that he found him out? He knows that he cannot escape him. 
Jonah feels like God is chasing him. Why? Because he is chasing him. And notice the captain cares. Unlike Jonah, the captain cares not just for his life, but for all those above, right? All on the ship and for Jonah's life. Jonah doesn't care about anyone. He just wants to go into the hold of the ship. He's perfectly fine with dying. He doesn't care about anyone. He is resolved that he would flee, and he doesn't care who suffers for his sake. He figured as long as Nineveh didn't repent, God wouldn't use them against Israel. Jonah has peace. He has peace in his heart so he can lie down and go to sleep. This is something of the dumbing again and numbing power, nature of sin. It's the poison of rebellion that corrupts clear thinking. And we see again the contrast there. God's action, the pagan's reaction, and Jonah's doing nothing. It's a non-action. And then next we have a series of questions and answers and actions and outcomes in verses 8 to 16. In verse 18, uh, verse 8 rather, we read, they cast lots and it fell on Jonah and they questioned him. Why is this going on? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What country? What people are you? Jonah answers only some of those questions that the text tells us. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Right? And you'll notice again, this is uh, one of those places where it's helpful to know the difference between uh, Lord, all caps, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, um, Lord with capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and God. Right? These are different names for God. All caps, as you know, Lord, is the covenant name of God, his personal name that he gives. It's Yahweh. And Jonah here says, I fear Yahweh as he's running from Yahweh. And the idea of fear is all throughout this text. It's fear. It's fearful. Don't feel fearfulness. The sailors fear because they're going to die. But Jonah only here, he says here that he's, uh, it's in, that he fears, but it's in stark contrast to how he's living. He fears Yahweh, he says. And again, verse 9, he is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this is another phrase that if we look at uh, the usage throughout the rest of the Bible, it's usually it says, the God who made the dry land and the sea. They're usually reversed. But he says he is the God who made the sea and the dry land. And notice the absurdity. He says, I fear God who made the sea. But where am I running from this God? Where where is he running from him? On the sea that he knows that Yahweh made. There's an irony there. His confession is true. He knows it's true, but he's living a life that's completely opposite to that. And again, this is the tragedy of sin. It's completely irrational. It's senseless. He knows full well that nothing will stop God if God wants him. Jonah knows that indeed. In his head, he knows this, but he is so willing to lie to himself and has lied to himself in sin that he's willing to try and see if he's the exception to the rule. And again, that's the grand folly, brothers and sisters, right? It's the grand folly of sin. And we do it all the time in many different ways, right? We say, I know what the Bible says and I know its effect on me. And the ramifications that this sin will have in my life, in my family, in my job, in my neighbors, in my friends, in my church. But I can still sin for a little while. I'll get away with it. Because I'm different. God thinks I'm special. His rules don't apply to me. 
whatever the reason, we begin to think in patterns in our, in our minds that we know on one level are completely untrue. We've all seen people go down this road and the damage that results, but we still go down it. It's the insanity of sin. It's the destruction and the deceit and the demise of sin. Some of us are caught up in that right now. We think God's not watching me. I can get away with this. Yet we know that God is always present and that he sees all things. And to God, it's not only dangerous rebellion, but it breaks his heart. You belong to him and you eschew his rules and you live as though he's not true. And you live contrary to, to who you are, who his word says you are. Notice again the sailor's response, right, what it says. It says they feared a great fear. They feared a great fear. Why? Because they knew that Jonah was running from Yahweh and they just learned who Yahweh is. They feared greatly. Again, it says they feared a great fear, a true, real fear. And Jonah says, I serve Yahweh, him I fear. But there's no humility. There's no trembling in Jonah, only rebelliousness. But the unbelieving pagans are doing what? They're scared to death. They're shaking in their boots. What do we do, they ask him. Well, we don't know, so you tell us. He's your God. Jonah says, lift me up and hurl me into the sea. Notice the realities here. Jonah knows God. Jonah knows God's power. And that it is because of him, he is the reason for all of this trouble. And he's become so rebellious and so hard-hearted that he doesn't care about anyone. This is God's prophet we're talking about. This is his testimony. His words right here, but his life is a mess. He believes on one level that he can escape God, but on another, he knows that he cannot. And again, brothers and sisters, may God help all of us to believe God in a way that is true and real and not just theoretical or hypothetical. James chapter one says, sin devours, it brings forth death. It's like a drug, it is never satisfied and it never satisfies. And ultimately it ends only in ruin. So we should take sin seriously. We should plead with God that he will make you aware of that sin in all of its ugliness. And that he would make you to know that it doesn't control you, you have no has no power over you if you belong to Jesus. Plead with him that he would give you strength and assurance, not in your working, but in his victory. In his victory is the promise of freedom from the bondage of the sin. And notice Jonah's answer um, as he is interacting with these sailors, these mariners. He says, throw me over and you'll be saved. Kill me and God's wrath will appease you. But what do the sailors do? They rode harder. It says they rode harder, to, harder and harder to get to land, which again is foolish. Why? Because see, they just learned that this is the God also of the land, the dry land. They're hesitant to throw him over. They care about him. They care about human life more than Jonah does. So they put all of their effort into rowing back to shore to keep from doing what Jonah says. And then look at verse 14. Amazingly, verse 14, they all called out to Yahweh, right? They all called out to Yahweh, no longer to each his God, 
They've heard Jonah. They believed him. Jonah's not offered up one prayer to this at this point. Not once has he called to Yahweh, his covenant God. But the pagans have, and they've asked for mercy of Yahweh. They've said, basically, we know it's you. We know it's you who sent this, and we don't want to die. We're going to throw him over because he told us to. But don't be angry with us. He told us to do it. We don't know how to please you. This is what your prophet told us to do. So if it's wrong, if, we're, if, if this is wrong of us, when we do it, forgive us. We're not trying to kill him. And notice how, how it ends uh, in this, this, this little exercise, verse 15. Because you, O Yahweh, do as you please. The sailors are becoming more and more orthodox, and Jonah is what? He's becoming more and more adult, more and more foolish. He's supposed to be God's witness. His confession is right, but his life is a mess. The pagans are showing him what it's like to cry out to Yahweh. Right, So God, we see here, has hurled a storm. They've hurled Jonah. The sea has ceased from its raging. The storm is gone. God's anger is pacified in Jonah's death. We see the result in verse 16. Verse 16 says, The men feared a great fear of Yahweh, and they sacrificed sacrifices to Yahweh, and they vowed vows. This is the response to this interaction. God's action, their reaction, Jonah's action, him telling them they do it. And this is what happens. They feared a great fear to Yahweh, and they sacrificed sacrifices to him, and they vowed vows. And this is almost here in the book, in the beginning, it's almost a false resolution, right? The story seems to conclude. And if you'd only read this for the first time, you don't know about the fish that God commands, appoints to swallow Jonah, or the, the rest of it. The story seems to end here for Jonah. The storm is gone. The pagans are fearing greatly of Yahweh. There is a double sense in Jonah. One sense... On the one hand, he is a real, it is a real warning to the people of God. As Israel's prophet, he said, stop messing around with God. He's going to send Assyria, and he's going to take your kids, and he's going to take your wife, and he's going to take you out. You've got to stop playing games with God. He's not messing around. <coughs> this is his warning to the people of God. That's been Jonah's message. And now he's got to go and give that message to someone else. And Jonah is living a life that looks just like the Israelites' lives that he went to speak out against. And Jonah's telling Israel, obey God or he's going to get you. So God commands Jonah. He gives him a command and he disobeys and he disobeys. And what are the consequences? Over the side of the ship, Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea. Jonah goes down one more time Right, One step, and that's much, much farther from the promised land. Down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the hold of the ship, now down into the depths of the sea, which to every Israelite would have meant he's dead. He's gone to his death denying his maker, fooling with his covenant God and not obeying his Lord, rendered a real judgment against Jonah. And the people were to wake up and to say, if we keep playing with God, he's going to judge us too. We see here in Jonah, brothers and sisters, 
There are those stark warnings all throughout Scripture that sin is not to be trifled with. You're not to play around with sin. It's not a small thing. It is your very life that is at stake. And there is a glaze over the eyes of many, even in the church, sadly, that if you accept Christ, God is going to be nothing but nice to you from then on. And you can do whatever you want. You don't have to obey him or anything that looks like obedience. You don't have to care or have faith or or conform to the image of Christ or grow in holiness and love and forgiveness. Some people really believe those things. What is your attitude towards your enemies? Not not Assyria, and this is a challenge to us as we look at Jonah, we look at our own lives. What is our attitude towards our enemies? Not so much Assyria, but what about all of those terrorists who who are working for the enemy to destroy as many Christians as they can in this world? And if you, brothers and sisters, could wave the proverbial magic wand, would you desire their destruction? God, take them out. Or their conversion. I know which one is easier for me to desire. But I also know which one, and I think you do too, that God requires of us. Right? What about Think about the cultural factors in our lives that are hell-bent on destroying Christian values and Christian ethics. What about the militant, deviant lifestyles uh, or even just the faddish atheists who truly hate you because you're a believer in Jesus Christ? Do we desire for them to be crushed or converted? Right? We, the list could go on and on. What about those, those in government that champion those very things that are diametrically opposed, the exact opposite of everything that we, are, that we hold faith to our Savior, to our holy faith? What about those? Would we rejoice in their demise or do we pray for their salvation? Do we pray for the Christ-like mercy that he showed to each one of you who entrust yourselves to Jesus Christ? Or do we pray that God would rain down fire and destroy them? One in the flesh is very easy to do. But it's the other that's commanded of us. Do we want to see our enemies receive justice or mercy? Right? And we should be thinking of verses like Matthew chapter 5, where we're commanded to love our enemies. Right? We should want all to come to faith. How earnestly do we pray and how regularly Truly, in thinking of these things, your kingdom come, your will be done. Do we think like that? Because we need to be aware of the tendencies that we have to flee to Christ, uh, free Christ's commands. Right? Jonah is a wake-up call. There are many layers to Jonah. God is not to be taken lightly. He's not to be played around with. God cares about what we think and what we do. And what is the hope of all of this? When we look at Jonah, Jonah is a twofold sign. On the one hand, Jonah is a warning that God does not look favorably upon those who rebel against him. It's a warning against that. But Jonah is also a promise of salvation. A promise of salvation. And again, just and we'll close with this. Notice what happens with Jonah. Again, he says, throw me over and you'll be saved. And in his death, they receive life back from sure destruction. Christ makes it plain in the New Testament as we've heard it that I'm not going to give you any sign but that of Jonah. I'm the greater than Jonah, Jesus says. I'm the greater than Jonah. And those that believe in me 
will be saved. And in my death will be life for you. And do you see, it's unlike Jonah who disobeyed God. Christ who is perfect in obedience to the Father's will. Christ who hears the call of his Father to die at the hands of his own creation. And the Son says over and over again, what? Yes, Father, I will obey. The greater Jonah goes to the cross and gives up his life for those same pagans. And in his death, those who formerly had no relations with God, who could never knowledgeably cry out to Yahweh, they are saved from certain death. Dear Christian, that is your only hope. That is our only hope. We who flee in rebellion against God, even those who are here in the covenant, young and old. The warnings of Scripture are to remind us that we are to continually follow Jesus by faith. And our hope and our only assurance is that Christ is merciful to sinners. He is merciful to sinners. Sinners that come to him. Sinners that come and believe he is able to save. Those who cry out to the God of the covenants. Those who humble themselves in sight of the Lord. For those fleeing today, if there be any here, I encourage you even now, come, believe, repent, be saved. The greater than Jonah is here, believe on him. Brothers and sisters, delight in your Savior. Listen to his demand on your life. Trust that as you do, as you do trust in him for all of your life and eternity, that your life is hidden with Christ in God and by virtue of his love and his power in your life. May we evermore, reminded by Jonah, praise him and his power and live lives that reflect the truth of our union with him, Jesus Christ, growing in holiness, all to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we come again before you by the power of your strength. Lord, we we ask, give us strength to live. Indeed, changed by the message we have heard, by the reminder of Jonah and the greater Jonah, Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to embrace these truths and to believe your word. May we grow to know and to love and to believe. Father, strengthen our faith. May we find our life in Christ. We ask, Father, use this church, Providence, for the furtherance of the gospel here in Fort Wayne. Do a work in this area to glorify yourself by this small colony of the kingdom of heaven. Dear Lord, we praise you. And we pray for all of us. Help us to have hearts full with your love, showing kindness and love for each other to such an extent that those outside, right, the outside world would see your peoples, that we are different. They would see our peculiarity, our joy and demeanor and behavior and peace and love, even in strife and stress. Lord, use us and our lives to witness to your glory. We praise you that you have fed us again this morning as we have heard your word. May we see that this is our life and our sustenance. We praise you, dear Lord. Asking all of these things in your son, in the mighty name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.